0: on today's episode of May the Record Reflect.
1: We can vary the pitch of the voice a little bit, the volume. We can use visuals. That's probably the example everybody thought I was going to go to first, and they're important. Charts, photographs, diagrams, um, blow-ups of key documents. But it's important to remember when we're doing that, that because it's the new thing in the courtroom, it's the change in the environment, that in that moment, everybody is going to be looking at the visual aid and not paying a lot of attention to the lawyer. And you can see people make the mistake of putting a document up in front of the jury or a map and leaving it up after they're done talking about it. But you'll still see people staring at it even though the lawyer's not talking about it. And the reason is the document's been there for two minutes. The lawyer's been there all day. The document is the change and hence more interesting. So trial tip number two is introduce change into the courtroom environment and understand that almost all of the ways we do that are pretty subtle, but effective nonetheless.
0: That was Steve Wood, And this is May the Record Reflect. Welcome to the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Mangan, and with me today is Steve Wood. Steve spent over 30 years with the Delaware Department of Justice, where he became the department's most senior and experienced trial attorney. He served as lead prosecutor in hundreds of jury trials, including complex homicide investigations and cases. During his time as deputy DA, he also served as the DOJ's legislative liaison to the Delaware General Assembly, where his duties included legislative drafting, analysis, and advocacy. He is now in private practice with McCarter and English in Wilmington, Delaware, and lucky us. He teaches trial advocacy here at NITA. Steve joined me recently to share his top 10 trial tips that make a difference. Here's our interview. So I shared with our listeners your incredible bio, and it sounds like you're pretty well positioned to share with our listeners some trial advice that will make a difference. So what is your first tip, Stephen?
1: I think the most important thing that I've learned about trial work is how insufferably boring I am. And I think anyone who wants to be a good trial lawyer has to come to grips with the fact that they too are boring and they have to own their boredom. And it's important to understand why it is that we're boring. The human senses exist to detect change originally, right? Mm -hmm. Um, 500,000 years ago, when something was rustling in the jungle behind us, we had to know whether it was something that we could exploit, a food resource, or something that maybe was going to exploit us as a food resource, and we had to react to it. Constancy meant no threat. That's why, for instance, uh, most of us anyway, when we want to go to sleep, will eliminate sensory input. So... um, We now call it boring, but it once meant safe when we weren't getting sensory input. And if you think about it, right, that's what a trial is. There's not a lot of change happening in the courtroom environment. There is someone usually standing in a podium talking to somebody who is seated and talking. And look, that's C-SPAN, right? Nobody watches C-SPAN because it's boring. Uh, And so it's really important to come to grips with all of the things it means once we can say out loud, hi, I'm Steve and I'm (laughs) bored. And, you know, you can sort of prove it to yourself, right? Next time you're in a large group situation, maybe a lecture hall or a courtroom, watch what happens if in the middle of the proceeding someone gets up and leaves the room. And you will see most of the people in the room follow that person out of the room by turning their head and with their eyes. For most of us, there's nothing intrinsically interesting about what we look like when we leave a room. And so the reason people are paying attention is because that is the change in the room in that moment. that's the new thing. And so it's a long answer, and probably a boring one, as a result. The <laughs> most important thing any of us can do is to choke down the ego and just look yourself in the mirror and say, "I am boring." And what am I going to do about it?
0: So can you tell me then why you chose to go to law school and become a lawyer?
1: Yeah, there's two versions of that story. The short one is calculus.
0: (laughs) Your hatred thereof?
1: I can remember. uh, Yeah, right. I can remember the last answer I gave on the last math test I took in college. You know how it'll say, name the letter X? Yeah, so I wrote Norman and handed it in left. It's true. I wanted to become a poli sci major without a lot of thought about what that would mean for my future. So now it's my junior year and I went to my advisor and said, Okay, it looks like I'm gonna graduate with a poli sci degree. What do I do with that? He said, Well, there's three things. You can get a PhD and teach, you can go to law school, or you can get a job in the grocery store bagging vegetables. What is it that you want to do? And I went to law school. And honestly, I'm not trying to be funny. There wasn't a whole lot more thought behind it than that.
0: So no other attorneys in your family or exposure to to law cases that kind of dragged you into it?
1: No, I was pathetically naive about what it meant to be a lawyer and in particular, the business of the practice of law. I had no clue about any of that stuff. Um. I did have a sort of latent desire to change the world. That's why I was a political science major. And I thought that the law might afford me the opportunity to do that. And look, it's not what most lawyers do, right? And so that's just sort of underscores how naive I was about
0: it. It's true. Yeah, everybody thinks that they're going to change the world. And some actually get to.
1: Well, and that's the thing, right? That's right. Some very small percentage of us will. And none of us on day one, when we enter law school, know who it's going to be. You just never know when um, it's going to be your turn to to get in the well and make things better.
0: Do you have a second trial tip for us?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, Let me go back to what I was saying about how insufferably boring I am and how insufferably boring, honestly, we all are. It relates back to the fact that we are a constant in the courtroom. And so what we need to do is introduce change into the courtroom environment to subtly increase the trier of facts attentiveness. And we're doing that by reengaging their senses, which have been lulled into a, 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 a place of soporific ease by the constancy of the courtroom. Now, I want to be careful here. Um, I'm not talking about turning the courtroom into a circus, and I'm not talking about the kind of grand, eloquent, and frankly cheesy gestures that we often see lawyers using in on television. Almost everything we do to introduce change into the courtroom environment—sure, it's calculated, or it should be—but they are subtle things because it doesn't take much to introduce change into the courtroom environment. Again, harken back to what I what I said before about how when someone leaves the courtroom, the heads turn. Well, that's a pretty subtle thing, right? And that's the kind of stuff we have to do. So so what can we do? We can move, always with a purpose, never randomly, because then the random movement becomes a constant. Um, it, it's as simple as if in an opening statement or closing argument, when we're in front of the jury, we say, uh, we walk three steps to the left, because now we're going to be talking about something We can use our hands, but again, not constantly because then the constant movement becomes a constant and it's boring. Um, I think what we do with our voices is critically important and something that anyone who talks for a living needs to study. Um, We can change the tempo of our voice. We can pause. Um, We can uh, vary the pitch of the voice a little bit, the volume. We can use visuals. That's probably the, ex- the example everybody thought I was going to go to first, and they're important. Charts, photographs, diagrams, um, blow ups of key documents. But it's important to remember when we're doing that, that because it's the new thing in the courtroom, it's the change in the environment, that in that moment, everybody is going to be looking at the visual aid and not paying a lot of attention to the lawyer. And you can see people make the mistake of putting a document up in front of the jury or a map and leaving it up after they're done talking about it. But you'll still see people staring at it, even though the lawyer's not talking about it. And the reason is the document's been there for two minutes. The lawyer's been there all day. The document is the change and hence more interesting. So trial tip number two is introduce change into the courtroom environment and understand that almost all of the ways we do that are pretty subtle, but effective nonetheless.
0: What do you remember about the very first time you stepped into a courtroom as a newly minted lawyer? Oh, my gosh.
1: So you have to understand Delaware, where I practice. Three counties. The northern county is in the northeast, Megalopolis, right? It's a suburb of Philadelphia. The southern county, Sussex County, um, feels like the rural south in a lot of ways. So I, um, my first job was with a civil litigation firm and they gave me a case to try that was in the justice of the peace court, a magistrate court. The judges are not lawyers, people's court. Uh, And I don't even remember much about what it was about. My client was a car dealership. That's all I remember. So I went down there in a suit in this courtroom that shared space with a gas station. Really, I'm not making this up. (laughs) And I'm, you know, I'm using the big words and I'm objecting. And the judge was just looking at me like I was from Mars. Um, and then at the end of it, because it was my first trial, he, you know, hand wrote the judgment on a prefab form and gave me a copy of it. And I actually made him autograph it because it was a big deal to me. And I think he thought I was, uh, I was teasing him, you know, because I was the city slicker coming down in the suit. Um, but I wasn't, it was a big deal and that. I still have that judgment hanging up. on on my wall
0: so did your side prevail then
1: uh as i recall and this was a pretty uh pretty good entree into civil litigation anyway the judge split the baby and uh gave them about a third of what they were looking for
0: all right do you remember any of the mistakes that you made from that first trial of yours
1: i'm sure i made a million mistakes Look, there's two ways you can learn how to try a case. One is you go to a courtroom and you screw it up, and the other is you do NETA classes. And I didn't do NETA classes for the first, I don't know, five years, so I was screwed up a lot. What I remember is my first jury trial, and, and, and by this time, I'd become a prosecutor. And I don't know why, but my very first witness, I said, when were you born? That was my first question and my first witness. And the other guy objected on hearsay grounds saying that the witness couldn't possibly know when he was born because somebody must've told him.
0: Oh, boy.
1: <laughs> and, right. And I, I'm sure my jaw hit the ground and I didn't know what to say. And what I learned from that is always anticipate objections. So how about that?
0: So is that uh, trial tip number three or do you have a different trial tip number
1: three? So we've talked a lot about being boring and we've talked a lot about the fact that uh, it's inevitable. So one of the consequences that is drawn from that truth is that at any given moment in a trial, uh, uh, none of us have any reasonable expectation that a majority of the jury or the judge in a bench trial is paying attention. And that is not... uh, it's not a condescending statement. If we are honest with ourselves and we think about our attentiveness during a lecture, your mind wanders. No one will listen to this podcast and hear every word that you and I say. It's just not the way human beings process the environment. And so because of that, there's no reasonable expectation that at any moment in the trial, a majority of the trier fact is paying attention. So, what does that mean? The most effective tool we have for cutting through the inevitable fog of boredom and the lack of attentiveness is repetition. Repetition is the most important teaching tool we bring with us to the courtroom. Things that are repeated are more likely to be heard in the first instance, they're more likely to be understood, and they're more likely to be remembered come deliberations. So, you have to repeat stuff. If it's important, it has to be said more than once. If it's important, it has to be said more than two or three times. Um, too often, you'll see what I call uh, a checkbox direct, and we've all seen them. Somebody asks the question, um, "Is that the man over there that you saw with the gun?" Yes, and they're done, and they move on to the next thing because they've checked the box on the outline that says make witness identify man with gun. But that's not the point, right? We're not in there to satisfy our checklist or our outline when we're doing, say, a direct. We're in there to be persuasive. And to be persuasive, we have to repeat the critical things. It's the most important teaching tool we have.
0: And I also am thinking of primacy and recency as well. So the first thing that you say Is more important than the second thing that you say, and the last thing that you say is more important than anything else that you say in the middle.
1: That's exactly right, and the reason for that again gets back to uh, the way senses, our senses, process the information that are that's coming to us. Um, We sort of get lulled into into a into almost a stupor. I don't want to overuse that word, but when you get a sense that somebody's about to finish. The attentiveness lifts up because we're getting ready for the next thing. Right now, I am going to steal something from uh, a Nita teacher uh, with whom I worked many years ago, and I wish to God I could remember his or her name, and I just can't. So I am plagiarizing without attribution, but only because I don't remember. Somebody I taught with once said something that I thought was brilliant, and it's this time is the measure of importance in the courtroom whether you want it to be or not and what that means is we indicate importance by how much time we spend on something so if i say hi my name is steve wood and one you know one statement one sentence and is that the man over there with the gun one sentence. What I've just said is that my name as a lawyer is just as important as the eyewitness identification of the murderer, which is obviously. But if you bear in mind that time is the measure of importance in the courtroom, it keeps you from making that mistake. And it reminds us always that we need to spend time through repetition on the things that are really important in the the trial. And That is persuasiveness. And if you think about almost any, for instance, political campaign, the key themes are repeated over and over and over again. They spend time on them. And political campaigns are are really great sources of information about how to try a case and how to cut through the fog, because that's what a political campaign is trying to do. And you know, those people are well practiced in the art of having their way with us in that way. And we can learn a lot from them. And no question about it. They know what we have to remember, which is time is is the measure of importance in the court.
0: Is there a particular part of a trial that really you get a charge out of that you enjoy the most?
1: I mean, cross-examination is a lot of fun because it's edge work, meaning somebody's going to win <laughs> and it's not necessarily me. So, um, Especially if you're cross-examining a, a, a wily witness or an expert, you know, you've know you really got to have your wits about you. But I have come to really enjoy opening statements because over the years, I have, uh, through my own observations and through a lot of um, social science and uh, jury research studies that I've, that I've read, I've become convinced that the opening is the most important part of the trial. And that if you deliver a masterful opening, um, you're three quarters of the way down the road to winning. Um, especially if you're the party with the burden of proof, if you do a great opening, then what you're doing is changing the vibe in the courtroom to from what are the facts to is everything this guy just said true? And if my opening has been an honest one, I know I can prove that what I said was true, Right. Because otherwise I wouldn't have said it unless a witness goes south on me or something, so I have and I know not everybody believes that the opening is the most important part of the trial. so another reason I like doing openings, even though i 'm not actually in conversation with anybody about it, is I'm sort of testing my own belief that it's the most important part of the trial. but there's some fascinating social science research out there. Um, I saw a study. Uh, that someone did in, I think it was Arizona. I'm not sure about this, but I think I'm right. Um, And what they did was they, they did a trial without opening statements. It was a mock murder trial, I think it was. And after each witness testified, they would say to the mock jurors, okay, what happened in this case? And by the second or third witness, people had these elaborate stories about what happened, none of which was borne out by the evidence. But what it shows is the need for people to have a story. And there are three choices. The trier facts are either going to make up their own story, they're going to buy the story of my opponent, or they're going to buy mine. And I can't win if they don't buy mine. Psychologists tell us that people process information um, in part pursuant to schemata schemata schema is uh, a way of processing new information pursuant to patterns that have been established and belief systems before the information is received and you can see how um as a matter of evolutionary psychology that a long time ago uh Schema about how the world worked would have survival value because if you saw something or smelled something or heard something that you had never encountered before, you didn't have to spend a lot of time thinking about what it might be. You just sort of plug in that into what you already knew and and move forward. Um, So we all have and are process information pursuant to schema today. That's just how human beings think. Um, Look, they can be ugly. Uh, racism or sexism, in a way, are uh, a schema. You're plugging a fact into your belief about how the world works. Um, another example, if I say universal health care to a Republican or universal health care to a Democrat, and I know I'm generalizing here, but you get the point. You're going to get a different reaction because uh, political ideology is another kind of schema. Right. So what does that have to do with the jury? They are hearing a bunch of factual information that they've never heard before about a thing they've never heard before. And they are looking for a way to process the information because that's the way humans think. They're looking to create a schema. And in a good opening statement, if I'm having a good day, That's what we're striving towards creating, is the schema that the jury will use to process the information um, that you're going to be giving them. And it's so powerful, right? We've heard the the supposedly humorous, but actually truthful aphorism, uh, don't confuse me with facts, right? Well, psychologists tell us that schema are so powerful that people tend to disregard factual information that is inconsistent with an existing schema. And you know what, I, without trying to editorialize here, we can think about how that unfolds in our society today. Well, a jury's no different. And so a lot of what I've learned about trial work, and I think what I've been talking about so far relates to how human beings process information, because I can't change that. And you know, how arrogant would I have to be to try? What I need to do is figure out how people actually process information, how they hear it, um, how they organize it, so that I can make sure that I'm being heard. Now, I want to I wanna be careful. I'm not trying to get over on anybody. I'm not trying to trick anybody. Um, look, especially when you're dealing with a jury, right? I might, if I'm having a good day, be smarter than one or two of my jurors, but there are six or 12 of them, and they're going to be smarter than me. It's not about that. It's about trying to, to, uh, not even be persuasive so much as actually be heard and providing information in a useful way for the trier effect. Now that in my mind is persuasive as opposed to, uh, you know, sort of being a charlatan and trying to fool people, which is not, not what it's about at all. Sorry for the little tangent. there. No,
0: that's fantastic. I was thinking as you were speaking about how, um, part of jury selection, I think, is employing your own schemata to help eliminate the jurors who you think may not be um, sympathetic to your, your client's position.
1: Right. And why would that be? It's because that juror is processing information in their life already, before you ever met them, pursuant to schemata that are not helpful because they will make it difficult for you to suggest the schema that is going to be appropriate for use, um, given the information and the evidence that they're about to hear.
0: I think that we're now on trial tip number four.
1: I think this is something that you'll hear in every NIDA program. And so I'm, I'm saying this really for people that are sort of new to NIDA world, you've got to have a theme. It's a reason that explains to the trier of fact um, why you win. And often, but not always, it's rooted in terms of morality or fairness, right or wrong, promises kept, promises broken, um, trust versus uh, mistrust, things like that. Um, Most cases that go to trial, uh, you know, unless the other side is just unreasonable. Go to trial because the facts are relatively fairly balanced, and so you're not going to win in my experience. Usually, with the facts per se, it's going to be: Have I established a helpful schema for the jury to process those facts and understand what they mean? And have I explained to them in the first instance why the heck any of this stuff matters? What's the theme? And the theme has to be something that's easily repeated, there's that word again, throughout the trial. It should inform, it it shows up right at the beginning of your opening. It's woven through your opening. It informs the vocabulary that you're going to use in your questioning on direct, the themes that you're going to touch upon and cross. And of course, we'll come back in the closing. It needs to be, and I want to be careful here as well. It needs to not just be some pithy, cute, Statement, but it has to be something that explains succinctly um, and with intellectual integrity why you should win and why your case matters and why we're here in the first place. So, theme is so important.
0: I know that you've been practicing for many years and you've faced hundreds and hundreds of first days in the courtroom. Or a trial, do you ever still lose sleep because of nerves or anxiety the night before a trial starts?
1: It really honestly depends on on my level of preparation. If I feel like I've done everything I have to do and I've handled the logistics and I'm comfortable with my opening and I know which witnesses will be there on day one, then I can sleep pretty well. What keeps me up at night uh is not so much my fear about my performance, it's um whether the eyes' are dotted and the T's are crossed and that's not because uh, not because I'm overly confident, but um there was a great American philosopher who played center field for the Yankees in the seventies named Mickey Rivers, and he said one time, "Ain't no sense in worrying about it if I can control it, ain't no sense in worrying about it. And if I can't control it, ain't no sense in worrying about it. And, and I think that's right, or at least I think that's right when it comes to my own stuff in the courtroom. It's all of the other stuff. You know, do I have the binders that I need for the witnesses? And is the witness going to show up? And yeah, you, know, you know, that kind of stuff. That'll keep me up for sure.
0: Trial tip number five, what have you got for us?
1: Well, it's it's just so vitally important to remember that when we spend time on things, we are saying they're important. Because look, unless you know, unless you're psychotic, right? you talk about the stuff that's important, and uh, jurors and judges uh, get that. Especially jurors definitely do, and judges do as well. Um, a lot of times, we have the thought that a lot of these trial practice. Uh, tips and pearls of wisdom that we share at NEA programs really only apply to juries. And that is absolutely not true, especially when it comes to um, understanding how boring we are and elevating the attentiveness. Look, at least if I'm trying a case to a jury of 12, if nine of them heard it, I've got a shot at being uh, able to persuade them that that fact is established. But when there's only one judge you never know at any given moment when she is going to be answering her email or, you know, worrying about Amazon Prime days or whatever the heck people who are actually human worry about sometimes. So um, I suppose the trial tip, if, you wanna, if we want to try, is we could say that trial tip number five is all of these things matter at least as much with judges as they do with jurors.
0: And if it's just a judge, if it's a bench trial and you're appearing just in front of a single judge or maybe a small panel of judges, there's a lot that you can do. You, you ought to do your due diligence and learn as much about that judge as you possibly can.
1: That's right. And especially if you're a younger lawyer, I think um, people don't always realize how much trial practice and even the rules of evidence will vary um, state to state, county to county, and courtroom to courtroom. I'll give you a perfect example. I practice um, mostly in Newcastle County, Delaware, which is uh, where Wilmington, Delaware is. And among our superior court judges here, I think there are 18 of them. And you know the practice of tendering a witness as an expert? uh, Well, that's actually a controversial practice in some places. And in my bench, about half the judges will yell at you if you tender a witness. And half of them will yell at you if you don't. And if you look at the rules of evidence, it doesn't say anything in there about tendering witnesses. It's just a sort of a common law practice. And there are a million different examples of those things. And so it's crucial before you try a case in front of a judge, if you've never tried a case in front of that judge, if you have time to watch uh, for a couple hours, that's great. But at least spend 15 minutes talking to the judge's bailiff or court personnel about how she likes to run her courtroom because everybody's different.
0: Right. You've got to do your homework. I've also heard of um, researching previous decisions and talking to other colleagues who've presented before the judge. And you can Google and find out an awful lot. Like, you know, political positions and other writings and things like that, all which just come together to form this personality that you need to know about before you go in and present to them.
1: I think that's right. And another thing is, I think it's, if you've never been in the physical space, that courtroom before, I think it's very helpful to spend a little bit of time in the physical space because courtrooms are as different as people's houses. They really are. And You've got enough going on with managing your nerves day one of a trial, and you and I, it's worse if you're managing day one of trial in a room you've never set foot in before. So now, it, I think in in modern practice, probably you would have done motions hearings or something in that courtroom. But if that's not the case, just go even if even if it's just to watch, because you'll feel better the next time you're in there for sure.
0: So I know that taking a case to trial is a real feat of endurance. How do you like to unwind after you've finished a lengthy trial?
1: Yeah, the trial tireds are like nothing else, right? (laughs) That's true. Um, A couple of things. I like to just hang out with my family. Um, I like to, I'm a musician, so I like to play music and listen to it because that helps me relax.
0: I was going to say, I spotted that guitar in the background.
1: Oh yeah, I'm a bass player, and that is a 1962 Fender Jazz Bass that I just now got. And if there are any bass players listening to this, they'll they'll know why I'm happy. Um, (laughs) Another thing, okay, sure. Uh, Another thing that I like to do, because it's sort of the opposite of the ego that you need to be a trial lawyer, is I like to go either to the beach or on top of a mountain out west. Uh, because it is a great way to remind yourself of how utterly insignificant you are in the grand scheme of things, You know, when you're on the edge of creation, and it's, it's beauty that way. And it's really helpful. But the, I guess the bottom line is to do something that has absolutely nothing to do with the law at all. And um, the more of a life that you have outside of the courtroom, outside of the practice, the better a trial lawyer you will be, because you're not Trying to persuade people who are lawyers. And let's face it, we're all a little bit weird, right? Um, Because we sort of drink the Kool Aid. And it's important to remind ourselves that most people don't.
0: Trial tip number six. We're cruising along. I think it was
1: Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, the late great uh, Dean of Gonzo Journalism, wrote that you know you have peaked when you begin to plagiarize yourself. So, I'm going to prove that I've peaked. I'm going to plagiarize myself. Um, This is something that I would say if I'm fortunate enough to lecture on cross-examination at a NIDA program. Uh, I have sort of distilled for myself four basic rules of cross-examination, and I call them the four corners of cross-examination. And I I use that imagery because it reminds me of... um, A medieval fortress like you might see in uh, Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings or something like that. And what happens when you leave the fortress? Um, You're going to get killed. And so those four rules are my way of reminding myself, if I stay within the box of these four rules, I will survive this cross-examination and it will be no worse than pretty good. And so here are my four rules of cross-examination, the four corners of cross-examination. And none of the, I think these are not necessarily um, grand epiphanies. I'm not going to say anything that no one has ever said before. It's just a way of organizing them for me that works. Well, the first is leading questions only. So that's trial tip six A. Only ask leading questions on cross-examination. Trial tip six B. Rule number two is only ask about facts on cross-examination. One of the reasons we only want to ask leading questions are what's a leading question? A leading question is a question that asserts a fact. If you're trying to ask something on cross-examination and you can't ask it as a leading question, inevitably it's because you're not asserting a fact and you only want to assert facts. And the reason you only want to assert facts is so if the witness doesn't agree with you, you can impeach them if you are doing something like trying to get the witness to adopt your conclusion about what a set of facts means, conclusions are not facts. If the witness doesn't agree, all you can do is argue with them. And uh, you've given them power because you have uh, said that they are um, sufficiently empowered to argue with you. So leading questions only, facts only. Um, trial tip six C or rule number three would be each fact in a sequence has to logically progress towards a definable goal. Um, that's important so that if the judge in the middle of it stops and says, counselor, where are you going? You actually know the answer to the question, right? And the goal, the point you're trying to prove the thing you want to argue in closing Is your conclusion. So by knowing what the goal is, you are reminding yourself not to ask that question because it's a conclusion, not a fact, and we're only going to ask about facts. So these things all sort of piggyback on each other. And trial tip 6D or rule number four is the goal you're working toward has to be reasonable. Um, You can't get up there. I was a prosecutor for 31 years. I think I had maybe three guys confess in 31 years, right? So you can't get up and say, I'm going to make this guy confess. I'm going to make the expert admit that she's wrong and she's only saying it because that's what she was paid to say. That's not going to work. So the goals have to be reasonable. And at least for me, it helps when you say them out loud because sometimes when you say something out loud, you realize it's silly. In other words, unreasonable. So leading questions only, facts only. Each fact is a logical progression towards a goal about which you will not ask a question. And the goal is reasonable.
0: All right. So those are the four corners of the fortress of cross-examination.
1: Four corners of, cross- four corners of cross-examination.
0: All right. Well, that's a great visual. I'm sure that'll help. What is the most agonizing career decision you've ever had to make?
1: That is easy um it i was a prosecutor for 31 years and i loved the job i mean i really loved the job you know who who wouldn't find the opportunity to get paid uh, for doing the right thing to be intoxicating it was really a blessing and i got to go to court all the time and try actually try cases so the decision to leave the delaware attorney general's office where I had been a prosecutor for 31 years was uh, incredibly difficult. I knew that it was time to go, but that didn't make it any easier.
0: And how long ago did you leave?
1: Four years now. It'll be four, not quite four years. It'll be four years in September.
0: And was that the right decision in retrospect? You still feel good about it?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, look, prosecutors don't make a lot of money and um I needed to go make some money to secure my retirement, uh, and I say that without any shame. And also, you know, I, for a long time at the end, probably the last 10 years of my career, I was a homicide prosecutor, and my particular specialty uh, involved cases with psychiatric defenses. And they can be pretty grueling. The stakes are very high. Um, what you're talking about is awful. You're constantly waiting around uh, in in the sewers of humanity. Um, and I think it was taking a toll on me that I didn't really realize until I saw it receding in the rearview mirror. But having said that, uh, for young lawyers who are listening here, uh, and with all due respect to my brothers and sisters in civil practice, the absolutely the best job you can have as a lawyer uh, is anything that involves public service. And the best of those jobs is uh, being a prosecutor or being uh, an indigent defense attorney for whatever entity does that wherever you live. It's just great.
0: So coming out of law school, how did you end up with a career in public service? Did you choose it by design or did it happen incidentally?
1: Well, it depends on who you ask. My brother uh, would say and has said to me, remember when dad used to talk about the nobility of public service? You believed that stuff, didn't you? Um, So I guess I did. Uh, I went through Emory University School of Law had a program when I was there and still does. That was essentially uh, the NITA trial practice program. And it was required for all who attend. And it was an epiphany for me. And it really turned me on to the idea of being a trial lawyer. And then I pretty quickly realized that if you want to be a trial lawyer, you've got to, at least for a period of time, either be a prosecutor or uh, an indigent defense attorney somewhere, because they're really the only people who try a lot of cases. And so I, I wound up becoming a prosecutor and it was just great you know, again, to get paid to do the right thing was fantastic. Really great.
0: Yeah, I understand that pay is an issue. Um, I myself have always worked for a legal nonprofit. Um, I've been doing this for like 30 years now. And so I understand what you're saying about pay. And it makes me think so much about public service attorneys who really make a tremendous personal sacrifice to do the work that they do. And part of my work here at NITA is to write grant proposals for our scholarship program that enables public service attorneys and other attorneys who are experiencing financial need to get the exact same NITA trial advocacy training alongside practitioners that are are employed at firms that can actually afford to pay for it. Um, It helps level the playing field that, is an important part of our public service mission.
1: That's the best work that Nita does. And personally, I never say no to teaching at a public interest program of any kind, uh, unless my schedule won't let me. And I do them for free. And sometimes I pay my way there. Um, the people, uh, the men and women who are trying cases in the public interest are, you know, the closest things we have to, to nights in our, society. They're they are just the best. It doesn't matter what side of the V you're working on. If you're trying to make the world a better place, if you're defending the Constitution, you're the best.
0: Right. Yeah. When we think about access to justice, you know, we're talking about um, helping underrepresented populations get access to the courts. But for us, another part of it is that we also want to make sure that they're getting the best possible representation that they can. So leveling the playing field isn't just for the people who need to go to court, but it's also for their attorneys so that they get the kind of training and background and benefit from all the confidence and all the experience that you get by proper training.
1: That's exactly right. And it's something about which I I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more, and I couldn't feel more strongly about it. Look, when you look at America's social progress, really since the beginning, lawyers have been in the forefront of it, and certainly um, beginning in, in at least the 20th century. The real social progress that we've achieved has not been a function of the political system it's been a function of the judicial system and that means lawyers going to court when you want to change something and you're a lawyer you go to court and that means you damn well better know what to do when you're in a courtroom you might say well i you know i'm i'm going to do transactional work my whole life and i'm not a litigator and okay that's great the problem is history is not kind in its selection of the next warrior for justice. You never know when you're going to be the person uh, upon whose shoulders the the arc of history alights, because it's your turn to fix something. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's your kid. Maybe it's something you saw in the paper uh, that offends you, offends your sense of decency and justice. And if you're going to fix it, you got to go to court, so you better know how to do it whether you think you might have to or not. None of us know until it happens.
0: Absolutely true. So we are now at trial tip number seven by my count. What have you got?
1: Something um, that kind of contrasts kind of nicely with what, uh, what we were just talking about. But trials are often, and examinations in the course of trials, are often about drawing contrasts so look for the opportunity to draw a contrast um, with your questioning you can be argumentative in an opening statement for instance or in a direct simply by jumping out of chronology and placing two facts next to each other um and so try, that uh, involves a willingness to leave chronology to understand the persuasive power of drawing a dichotomy through a contrast and asking people to draw an inevitable conclusion. And usually the conclusion is obvious enough that you never even have to speak.
0: So do you find that creating that contrast in between two facts that don't seem to naturally go together makes them more memorable?
1: It makes them more memorable and you have to be careful and explain things for sure. So I, I want to be careful here in, in being understood when I say what I'm about to say. But part of the need method in teaching is because we've learned that people learn by doing as opposed to um, by being told, right? And that's true uh, for jurors and triers of fact as well. If you let them draw the conclusion themselves before you speak it, it's easier for them to own it. Because you didn't tell them, you, you were simply telling them what they already knew, which is a much much easier burden to carry. And um, let's see if we can come up with an example on the fly of what I mean. Let's say that I'm uh, I'm trying a murder case, and the def- I know that the defense is alibi. And I might then uh, jump from the crime scene and talk about the fact that there was, uh, forgive me, folks, blood everywhere, to pivoting to the defendant's first encounter with the police when he was covered with blood without transition or explanation. Simply by placing those two facts together, I have argued that the reason he was covered with blood is because he was the killer, but I never said it. That doesn't mean that I won't say it. It just means that I will let the trier of fact get there first. Not if it is a a conclusion that I think is a pretty obvious one that I don't have to worry about people going the wrong way with it.
0: I wonder if you have ever watched a big case in the media spotlight that you then wish that you could have been a part of, like when you read about it in the newspaper or you watched kind of the update like O.J. Simpson on the news back in the 90s.
1: Well, I hope none of the prosecutors in that case are listening to this, but uh, they must know what I'm about to say, which is that all, probably most trial lawyers and certainly nearly all prosecutors know that that case was lost because not to take anything away from the defense, the defense were brilliant, but the prosecutors screwed it. up. And we would come back from court every day and watch that trial unfold. And it was really a horror show. We knew in real time that they were screwing it. And so, yeah, if I had a magic wand or a time machine or whatever it takes, I would have loved to have tried that case because I wouldn't have lost it. Not because I'm so great, but um, better than they were.
0: You wouldn't have made a bunch of unforced errors.
1: Yeah, too far too many. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, so does that mean you watched court TV back in the '90s?
1: Not a whole lot of it. You know, people always say, "Do you watch uh, Law and Order or something like that?" and Why would I consume as entertainment the stuff I do at work? It's never made any sense to me at all. So honestly, I have never seen Law & Order, not even one single episode of it. Um, Yeah, I saw my cousin Vinny because that was funny. But uh, the rest of them, forget it.
0: All right. Uh, So now we're on trial tip number eight. What have you got?
1: Yeah. Well, speak English. Don't speak lawyer.
0: So no Latin, no legalese.
1: Right. Right. So you'll see people begin their direct examinations of witnesses all the time this way. Please state your name for the record. And what I will tell people, nobody has ever said that in the history of the world, except in a courtroom. Uh, and if you watch criminal trials, the police will talk about uh, responding uh, in, a, in their patrol vehicle as opposed to. Going someplace, and on and on, um, and we uh, we use flowery language that is stilted. Um, we'll say, "Did you did you relate that to him?" As opposed to, "Did you tell him?" We, we've all seen a million examples of that. Um, why would you want to build yet another barrier? This one, born of your vocabulary, between yourself and the people you're trying to persuade. Um, I'm not talking about being condescending not in the least but I th- I think speaking with people in the language that we share is honoring them I am meeting them where they are when I do and say and act like a lawyer um well, let's face it uh, I'm a member of a, prof- a profession that's not very popular why would I want to remind people of that so I try to remind myself with every witness not to begin by saying, state your name for the record. That's my way of getting in the headspace. And I want to always use words and vocabulary that I would use, minus the profanity, of course, in my everyday life, right? Um, And it's you want to avoid jargon, stilted language. And that's especially true, by the way, with experts. And if, an expert uses jargon, you must immediately stop them and say, wait, what's that mean? Because people don't know. And your job is to persuade. And if you, confusion is the opposite of persuasion. So speak English, don't speak lawyer. That would be trial tip number eight.
0: All right. That's a good one. Let's catch up and do trial tip number nine.
1: Okay. This is uh, Steve Wood's third rule of trial physics. Everything you do in the courtroom will provoke an equal and opposite reaction from your adversary. Meaning, always be cognizant of the fact that there is somebody on the other side of the V, across the aisle from you in the courtroom. Assume that that person is better prepared than you are, smarter than you are, and is working harder than you are. Whatever it is that you do, they're going to react to. So for instance, when you do a direct examination, a cross-examination will follow. What does that mean? Well, you want to get the bad facts out of the witness yourself using um, the emotional tone and the vocabulary and the timing of your own choosing. We've talked about the need to have a case theory. You've got one, but the other side's going to have a case theme and the theory as well what is it? The more time you spend thinking about your case um, as if you were trying the other case, the better and stronger your case will be. So the bottom line is, don't just think about your case, spend lots of time thinking about how the other side is going to react to to your case and what their case is going to be. And then you won't be uh, surprised by as much stuff.
0: Someday you are actually going to retire from this brilliant legal career of yours. And I wonder what you plan to do when you do.
1: You know, I, have, I haven't thought about that at all. I really haven't. Um, I know the time will come and that's cool and I'll figure it out then. But, you know, I I really like what I do. And so I am not possessed with uh, an overwhelming desire to escape from it. Um, yeah. So I don't know. We'll see.
0: All right. I think that we are now at trial tip number 10. How shall we close this show up?
1: You know what? Don't be a jerk. We've been talking a little bit about the fact that as lawyers, we are members of a profession that is not held in a great deal of public esteem these days. I mean, honestly, we're right. You look at the Gallup polling, we're right down there with Congress. And I think a lot of that is stuff we've brought on ourselves. So don't be a jerk. When you are in a courtroom, be courteous, be cordial. I think it's especially important if you're trying a case against a jerk. You don't want to get dragged uh, into the sewer by an adversary who apparently uh, just climbed out of one. I. If I had an aspirational goal for myself, and I'm not saying I always make, reach it, but um, it would be to be courteous and polite always. Um, th- you know what? It, there's simply no reason to be otherwise. It's not, the bigger jerk doesn't win. Now look, it's especially true in front of the jury. Uh, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this has had the the sad experience of living in close quarters, maybe with a roommate, uh, a friend who quarrels with people all the time. That's like watching your parents argue or whatever. And it's uncomfortable. Well, juries don't want to watch you squabble with the other lawyer. It's uncomfortable. So don't do it. So trial tip number 10, don't be a jerk.
0: (laughs) I think that it's great advice for life. Even the non-lawyers out there need to listen to that one. All right. So, my last question then is my signature sign off question. And it is what book are you currently reading for pleasure? So,
1: there are two answers for that. The honest answer is I am reading Akil Amar's book, uh, The Constitution of Biography. But if I say that, I'll sound like a geek. And I really do. I am reading that book, but I am reading two other books. So, I'll say those. Um, Only a select percentage of the people who hear this will understand what I am about to say, but I am a Met fan, uh, the New York Mets, the baseball team. And through most of my life, they have been brutally bad. And there's a book that's just come out called So Many Ways to Lose, and it's all about the schadenfreude of being a Mets fan. And I I feel um, a kinship with the author and with all of those who have suffered all of those years uh, rooting for the blue and orange. So there's that one. and. Uh, the other one is a picture book, mostly. Um, there's a guy named Getty Lee, the bass player in Rush. And if I could be anybody in the world, it would be Getty Lee because he's a huge baseball fan. He's a great baseball player. And he has what may be the largest collection of bass guitars in the world. And he just published a book called Getty Lee's Big Beautiful Book of Bass, and it is a picture book of a lot of his uh bass guitars but what's really cool about it, it, it you know and unless you have a collection fetish of your own may not make sense but he explains his joy in the collection and the finding of the things and why he loves being a bass player and what he loves about the bass and I can relate to that kind of stuff so I'm I'm reading that too
0: yeah that sounds really cool it's Even if it's not a particular interest that you share, it's really fun to see somebody who is caught up in the passion of their own interests. And it sounds like that's what you have found in this.
1: Yeah. One uh, one of the best things about being uh, on on a need of faculty, especially in one of the programs where we can spend time together afterwards is everybody that teaches these classes loves being a trial lawyer. And we all uh, approach things differently But the passion for the work that we do is palpable, and I find it to be incredibly energizing. And there's no doubt that I wouldn't be anywhere close to where I am today in terms of what I know about trying cases if it wasn't for Nita and the brilliant faculty members that I've learned from over the years because of their passion for it, for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, with that... Thank you so much for joining us today and spending time with Nita and sharing so much that you know through your experience. And it was a pleasure talking to you.
1: Uh, Likewise, Marcy.
0: May the Record Reflect is one way we like to introduce you to some of Nita's world-class faculty. Steve Wood is typical of the very practitioners, judges, and law professors who teach at our programs and write the textbooks we sell. They are the best of the best. If you figure that each person of Steve's caliber has been practicing for at least a few decades, and we have over 800 such faculty members, and Nita's been around for 50 years, then it really speaks to the depth and richness of our experience in trial advocacy. If you have a few minutes to take a tumble down the rabbit hole, I invite you to visit Nita.org and click on the Resources tab. That's where you'll find all of our chewy, value-added content, like our webcasts, white papers, articles from the Journal of Appellate Practice and Process, and more episodes of this podcast. Best of all, every single one of these resources is absolutely free. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita, we are advocacy-enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.